Hello, welcome to Something Old, Something New, a podcast about the things important to people I think are cool and I hope you will too. Each episode I talk to someone who makes cool stuff and I ask them four questions. Borrowing from the old English wedding rhyme, something old, something new, something borrowed, something blue, I ask each person to talk to me about stuff they like or are interested in. From games, books, poems, film, theatre, ideas, to whatever they want to talk about, really. But in line with questions beginning something old that they have always carried with them, something new, recently discovered, something borrowed, given or recommended or stolen, and I change the something blue to something you are working on because it rhymes and it's my podcast. I'll do what I want to. In this episode, I'm chatting with game developer Catherine Neal in a cafe during the Amaze International Independent Video Games Festival in Berlin. Apologies in advance for the wildly varying sound quality. When we sat down, it was a relatively quiet, late lunchtime cafe, but it gets a lot busier throughout. And at some point, someone inexplicably puts on some very loud music. Also, we are surreptitiously eating ratatouille throughout. Content warning for swearing and revolutionary politics. Catherine, as you'll hear in a second, describes herself as a games industry hack, dismissing the term veteran, which she reckons should be used by people who've had more recognisable success. Catherine started working in games sometimes around 1998. She's New Zealand born, but grew up in Australia, and is currently living slash struggling to make a living as a game dev freelancer in Paris. She has a background in music which led her to work as an audio engineer and gradually she became more and more about making and designing games than just the audio. It's a bit hard for me to repeat this stuff in the same lightly dismissive terms with which she herself uses to describe herself because while Catherine in a deadpan drawl, which I'm super into by the way, I wish I was more deadpan, but while Catherine doesn't like to make much of her effect on the landscape of games, the fact remains that to me, she's quite a lot awesome. The impact of her most famous work isn't uncomplicated, so maybe it's hard to tell the story of her practice, but suffice to say she's in every great textbook I've ever read on radical game design. That most famous work is Escape from Woomera, a 2004 Half-Life mod that modelled the Woomera Asylum internment camp, and I apologise if I'm saying Woomera wrong, I don't have quite the proper rhythm when I say it. Um, While listening to Catherine talk about it as part of a maze, she explains that it suffers a little from a revisionist outlook. Right now, people talk about it as a shining example of games as activism, but back then, a piece of work in games which tried to depict the experience of being interned in for being an asylum seeker, um, it inflamed a messy debate about the cultural and political value of games, of what games should be about, about whether games should be funded in Australia publicly to make this kind of thing, and it was attacked from both the left and the right. Catherine basically was one of the first people challenging the political and cultural role of games. And also she co-funded Freeplay, one of the first festivals that proclaimed games are culture and tried to have those discussions with players, designers and public policy makers. Anyway, basically I think she's super cool and I was really grateful for the time she took to chat to me at Amaze for something old, something new. Anyway, let's go to Catherine in her own words. Yeah, I'm actually originally from New Zealand, but I my working life has been in Australia and France. And I live, I live in France now. We did the project, which was called Escape from Umrah. Um, I'm also 
disappointed with some aspects that we were unable to achieve, you know, like to go forward with the game, for example. We only made a prototype. Although in this era of small games, you know, it was, there's about 30 minutes of gameplay, so maybe that's like a giant game, game festival terms for some, in some respects. Um, I'm happy that me and some other people managed to do a, create a, an indie games conference and festival in Australia that's still going. It's been going since 2004 and now it's 2016. It's still going. Um, but, you know, there's always regrets as well. It, I, you know, obviously it was going to happen anyway. Indie games were on the cusp of doing things. But I think, like, there was the Garage Games Conference. You know, Garage Games was a company that made the talk game engine. They were, they were an indie studio, one of these kind of rare indie studios with a profile who made specifically indie games and made this game engine that indies could use. If you had $1,500 and it was a really low-spec engine at the time, which that was really impressive, you know, rent, uh, engine like Renderware... Which could cost you thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars if you had a five-person team <laughs> to to use on it per game. So um, what I'm saying is they had a conference, right? Mm-hmm. And I think ours was the second in the world. There was the IGF, but there wasn't an indie summit. So I think we were pretty early. But you know, Australia is the other side of the world. So maybe if we'd, maybe if we were Germany mm-hmm. or something, we could have gotten lots of Europeans to it then. Then it would be a much bigger thing, but you know we're so isolated. But yes. I think it's a struggle for Australian developers to live on the other side of the world and you know get international speakers. And this is before Twitter. This is before. This is before even MySpace. Mm. When did you like? What's your timescales? When did you start? What year did you roughly start working in? Um, 1998. Mm-hmm. Um, is when I officially got my. First job. Yeah. And what are you doing in France? Um, I'm I'm doing freelance stuff. I'm doing little bits and pieces here and there. I'm doing music for a friends game in Australia, and I'm doing a project with um, Jennifer Schneider. You know, struggling. Yeah, as fellow freelancer. <laughs> I work trying to work on my own stuff as well, but you know, no one's paying me for that. Sure. Um. So what? bit of stuff of cultural life would you like to offer under the title of something old? There is a book that you've probably heard of because you're an educated theatre type person. If you haven't heard of it, that, that's no, no, oh god, now I've just like set up this whole insulting um, thing about it if you haven't heard of this book. But you know, you probably, oh, sure. Um, <laughs> the Life and Opinions of Tristram Shandy, oh, yeah, yeah. which has been described. I feel relieved now. By, <laughs> <laughs> sorry, gosh. So by some as one famous critic, I think, as mm. a study in digression. Mm-hmm. And that is not the something old, but it's very close mm-hmm. because I used to be, when I was very young, I was an 18th century file. Mm-hmm. My favourite book. Um, is um, an old book. It is The Adventures of Peregrine Pickle by Tobias Smollett. These hilarious 18th century novels, they're old, but they're also... And the satires from that time, early 18th century satires, the Augustan satirists, Jonathan Swift um, in particular. That kind of humour, I really like that kind of humour. And more and more, as I'm getting older, I'm coming back to 
satire and humour because that's something as a teenager I was really into then things got all serious and stuff like I tried to be a pianist like I went to you know I'm a survivor of the of the conservatoire system I left school at 16 to be a pianist and everything got all very serious and then I you know serious 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 and now that I'm older I realise that what I was really into was humour when I was a kid and um these 18th century novels and that now I'm coming back to that and what is it so is it just about returning to the ability to laugh at yourself um well, no, well, generally generally the, the 18th century satirical I was like laughing at everyone else <laughs> you know like being really superior about it so it's not very humble you know when you're a kid right and what makes you feel happy, like the stuff, like the self-comforting, comforting stuff. I was an only child, and you know, I I didn't have a traumatic childhood. I spent a lot of time alone, and I made little little games, and I made you know really shitty text adventures in basic kind of. I was really into comedy kind of stuff, and and then and then I started getting really into the piano because I you know. If you're good at the piano, you should practice more and more and more. And eventually, I was practicing, you know, four hours a day after school. You know, you do your homework like it was a very regimented kind of. And I think I lost what made me feel happy was making stuff. You know, making music. You know, making music, but also making little funny things. You know, like doing doing impressions at school. Like I did this. I had this impression I did of the New Zealand Prime Minister. I could do this really good David Lonnie impression. So I and then I went when I went to music school. I had this really interesting Romanian piano tutor called Tamash. He would say, "You know, Catherine, your mind is a mess, and 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 whenever you perform, you know, it's not you play the clown. You play the clown. It's not you know. It's very funny, I'm sure, but you know, it's not going to. You need to be taken seriously as a musician." So I'm getting back to satire. What I'm saying is, like, I actually getting. I, the answer to your question is that I feel like this is about more about what I really enjoy. It was attracted to as a child that made me happy, and then I got away from that, and now I'm coming back. And do you feel like that desire is also expressed in the work that you're interested in at the moment, like the stuff that you want to make yourself? Like? Yes, m- most of most of my personal projects are um, satire. I was wondering if you feel like it's just a personal... You, you want to return to satire, if you also think that it feels like a, a relevant way to approach the world at the moment. Someone told me once that um, in the film industry they call humour the angry art, that people who work with humour are actually just really angry people. And I th- and that really resonated with me, and I think um, sometimes now, now when I see satire, like in a film or TV, I really feel like anger in some of it. Like, um, you know, Ch- Ch- Charles Chaplin's kind of stuff, like his film The Great Dictator, mm-hmm. you know, me now, as opposed to me when I was much younger, I kind of think, oh, fuck, I can see how angry he was, you know, like, this is hilarious, but he's, that man's so fucking angry. The Augustan satirists, of course, you know, worked, were actually paid by the political, you know, political parties to write, you know, mm-hmm. Gulliver's Travels was... He's paid by the, by the Tory party, yeah. you know, like, and, and he's got, and then there's a scene where, like, Gulliver is pissing on the Queen's, on the palace, you know, and 
and you know it's pissing on the queen you know like how and he was you know a modest proposal really angry about the you know like he irish irish people you know if they're so poor they should eat their babies and here's the recipe you know like that is just you have to be so angry to write something like that angry with the world so i think it is relevant to the world in so far as like sometimes you're so angry that you you have to go to this kind of humoristic extreme maybe in terms of an effective way to change the world, I don't think it's... I mean, you know, this is just media, like I... You know, when people say, oh, but, you know, you're an, acti- you're an activist if you write a poem, like... I don't want to be too dismissive because I know language changes and everything, but, you know, really power is down the barrel of the gun, you know, like I'm, I feel a bit Malcolm X towards the... You know, this is an activist poem. It's like, no, you know, it's about, it's about, it's about power and guns, really. Yeah, you know, the Black Panthers didn't write poems. Or maybe they did, but you know, like that's sometimes you really have to get it. You really have to actually materially do something. You have to face violence with embodiment of some kind, maybe not with violence. No, not with but, yeah, no, but but you know, for I, example, I, sometimes I think you do. Like, well, well, yeah, it depends on how you classify violence. Like, for example, just an example of the Black Panthers or um, self-defense is no offense, you know. Or, for example, you could say, you know, from a from a more conventional political perspective, you could say, well, what power do I have actually at the moment as a freelance game developer? But say, when I was, you know, a nine to five game developer, what power do we have? What, you know, I don't have a gun, but I have the ability to affect the system by withdrawing my labour. You know, withdrawing my labour is going to do more than, well, collectively, you know, I, could, that's the power. I have economic power. If I have economic power, that's more important than me making a game, really, unless my game is, like, incites a massive social movement and a strike or something. But, like, for example, in Paris right now, the Nuit Debout movement... Um, and, and in the suburbs as well, like starting that's something that is more important than what I'm doing. I feel kind of guilty about that because so, I used to be involved in. I used to be involved for about ten years. I was quite seriously involved, and um, now life is just one big holiday. So I went from being this musician type, you know, must do my four hours practice a day. And then I think, and I went into politics, and then I, you know, must be under the discipline, political discipline of this, and I will go to, to go to five meetings a week, and I'm going to do these leaflets, and I'm going to do this, you know, like, ooh. and then after that, it's like, um, it's like the whole rest of your life is a whole. Well, it kind of feels like, have you ever met? I met this Spanish woman who had done piano, like a you know, like, and I said, and, and now she's an engineer, and I said. I think she said to me, or well, I said to her, does your life feel like this giant holiday now that you no longer play the piano? And she's like, oh my God. Or I was like, oh my God, yes. It's just like the whole world. I can just get, I can sleep in and then I could just spend a whole day doing nothing, if I, you know, on a weekend or something. Um, so, something old? So, something new? Something recently discovered or come across? Well, something I've been thinking about recently, but lots of people have been thinking about it as well, yes. Mm-hmm. The automation of labour. Mm-hmm. Like, I've just, I've been thinking about that a lot. <laughs> because it, I keep hearing things like how, you know, Truck, truck drivers in America will be fully replaced by 2020. 
or um, you know, lawyers who you do do, do doc review, junior lawyers all be replaced by you know intelligent automated systems. And I feel like if 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 all these people are right and we're on the cusp of a massive change to labour, I feel like. Oh my god, <laughs> the world is going to be very interesting in the next five years, five to ten years, and um, that's new and terrifying, because if we continue with the balance of power we have in our society, then it's going to be very scary for people like us. It's already pretty scary for people like us because, you know, someone writes an article for a games magazine 15 years ago, they get probably more than they will do now, for example. Creative labour. Everyone's a graphic designer, everyone's got these skills, and they'll do a logo for, well, apparently do a logo for $5 or something, according to what I get in my Twitter feed. And already we're, you know, there's, there's a surfeit of creative workers, and soon there's going to be, you know, the surfeit of um, now that we've got you know crowdsourced labour, the uber the uberfication of the world, the brave new world that we're about to enter, kind of. Um, but you know, I think we should be working 15 hours a week, like um, Keynes. Keynes said, um, you know, by now, by 2030, he said by 2030 or something, we'll be working 15 hours a week. I'm getting it all mixed up, but Keynes said something about us working a certain number of hours a week and that should totally happen because that's justice you know? but like, not while people are stashing all their billions of dollars in uh, in, in the yeah. there's something there about the worth of labour which in, in some ways begins to be at the heart of like, and all the basic income experiments that people are talking about and I think there's a new basic income experiment starting um, in a part of Africa though I don't Cool, which part? Um, I'm not sure which country. Um, uh, that that sort of fills all the gaps of the previous basic income studies and is supposed to be really rigorous. Um, the yeah the the relationship of, of of humans to labour in this era is a challenge, and I sometimes think about if we need a reformation of what a union is in the context of a global workforce and those kinds of things. But the way that labour exists now, um, from my reading and what I understand, and I haven't read super deeply into this stuff, um, it is pretty much what stalled out of the world wars because the unions have been fighting for a certain number of working hours and a certain, you know, the weekends off and a certain amount of holiday. And um, they got to, what is it, is it, like 37 hours or 38 hours or 42? Depends on the country, I guess, yeah. but yeah, 35 in Australia. No, 35 in France and 35 in the building industry in Australia. Okay. I think it's 37 in, in England. Um, and I was reading a radical history of Scotland and it talked about how unions had just got to 37 hours, but they, the next point they were going to negotiate was 28, 28 hour weeks. And the reason that was stopped was because the First World War happened and they were all told that they were being unpatriotic um, for not just joining up the war effort and continuing to fight for labour rights because obviously people had gone abroad so they had to buckle down and just work. And um, 
that's pretty much where a lot of um, there was some movement after the world wars because there was this new Labour government that came in, um, surprisingly voted in after the, the world wars um, by returning soldiers who wanted to rebuild the country in a different way to you know what they what they'd seen and what they'd come back to. Um, uh, so I, I also spent time thinking about like how how do we how do we deal with this automated society and and these workforces which move across borders so easily? Well, I I I don't often admit this except within private circles, but I'm a Marxist, so. <laughs> I actually, I, I think the minimum income thing is good, but also I believe in the right to work and the right to satis- you know, have a satisfying, to participate, to labour in some form. That might be writing poetry, that might be, you know. I think minimum guaranteed income is definitely a positive step, but I do worry that when Silicon Valley people are advocating it, what their version of the minimum the guaranteed income it might be a lot lower than, you know, like as a replacement for the welfare state kind of thing, you know, I wonder if, if that, if they kind of think that, oh, well, that'll let us off the hook, you know, we just get all these people living on bread and water, yeah. it's like, we gave you bread and water, come on, you know, you've got this, you know, like, whereas in Europe, I get, you know, people's idea of a minimum guaranteed income is probably quite different, it's like enough to not just survive, but to have holidays, and, yeah. Um, no system is... Uh, Resist, completely resistant to exploitation, I think. It's, yeah, I guess yeah. I guess you get that and you just keep fighting. Like, you've got fighting to, to protect it, but also to push it forward and to, like, well, not only should people be able to have a minimum income, but they should be able to have education and they should be able to participate in the workforce in a way that feels meaningful to them. Because I know, you know, I, I, my fans, I don't mind being unemployed for the rest of my life because I can work on projects. But I have, but I know people who like if they don't have something to to do, like get really depressed. <laughs> There's this um, New Zealand song from the '80s called "By the Chills," called um, "In the Doldrums on the Dole," describing the sensation of being a student on the dole over the summer and like you have lots of showers. It's kind of cool at first, but then you know after a while you have showers because you're bored. Mm. So. I wonder though if um, some of that feeling of um, and, and I suppose it's quite appropriate uselessness um, I wonder how much of that comes from the, the rhetoric around work and usefulness and your work. Oh yeah that's terrible that. isn't it that kind of that kind of you know you should, yeah, the moralism mm. which is like in France for example I love the way there is far less of that moralism you know like obviously there's the like President Sarkozy, he's not the president anymore. But you know, he said, you know, work. We've got to change the, the French mindset. We've got to travail plus pour gagner plus. Like work more to earn more. A lot of French people like this is like, why would I want to work more to earn? I have enough. Like why would I want to work more? Like, which is a, which is the right way to think. But you know, like people like a hundred years ago that was madness like why would like one of the one of the yeah one of the histori- as you say, like one of the historical aims of the labor movement is to is to um, get workers out of their 
out of the burden of work, like to recognise that work is shitty, like as any game developer knows. You might have the best job in the world, any job, even if it's the best job in the world, after a number of hours is a shitty job, as we've seen in the you know, recent you know, Alex St John's article. In all Just to know, this is in reference to an article that was doing the rounds in game circles at the time of the conversation, where some head of a game studio somewhere was explaining that games are a desirable career path, so people who work in them should be grateful to be exploited to the point of brokenness. It didn't go down well, and we all got to have the conversation about how neoliberal models for creative work are damaging again. Yeah, I have the best job in the world, maybe. It's not the best job in the world after 40, 50, 60 hours. So the quantity of labour is as important as quality of labour. So, yeah. Thank you. I'm going to move on to the next question. Um, which is something borrowed. Is there a piece of culture or things that you're thinking about at the moment which you've been lent or you've stolen or you've borrowed? Someone stole it. So I have this iPad in my bag. Someone stole it for me from their boss, from their employer. Okay. And I'm very grateful because this is expensive. Mm-hmm. I probably was. And I'm very grateful and it was a good gesture. And um, well, I, I'm a beneficiary of theft, and this is, um, I'm very pleased. I'm really glad that this was stolen for me because um, if you're making games for an iPad, not having an iPad is hard. And I got this really old iPad, and it doesn't have a retina screen, and and it really, like, you see, you see five-year-olds with iPad ears, and I'm like, I want to I wanna beat up those kids. I'm like, I'm a fucking game developer, I'm trying to, like, test my stuff, and I don't even have this gear. And you, you're a five-year-old, and you have an iPad ear? Come on, you don't need an iPad ear. I mean, your, your eyes probably aren't fully developed yet. And a lot of people I know, indie game developer type of people, they don't have the equipment they need to make their games, so yeah. fuck those five-year-olds. <laughs> and, and they break them as well, they drop them. Yes. <laughs> Jesus. Thank you. So your, your borrowed inverted commas... Uh, well, you did say it could be stolen. <laughs> it could be stolen, for sure. Um, thank you. I like that a lot. <laughs> um, it just happened to be my bag, so it's very yeah, useful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, final question then. Something you are interested in or working on at the moment? I'm working on a number of things, um, and I feel guilty about that because I seem to not be able to finish things. I've been working on things that I've been working on for several years, and but one of these things is it's like fits the U category in two senses because it's me who's working on it, and also it's um, it's a game project that is culturally closer to my background than any other game I've worked on. And also probably probably people wouldn't imagine that as well because um, I'm very white. <laughs> this is a game set in Polynesia, you know, in the Pacific Islands. It's a slightly futuristic game about global warming. It's a comedy game, comedy science fiction. Tiki Punk. Tiki Punk is like, you know, instead of steampunk, it's Tiki Punk. Okay. I'm, I'm trying to coin that term. Okay. You play as, you play, you know there's three genders in Simon. Male, female, and fa-fa-fine. It's, um, you know, it's transgender, male to female. However, many 
Fafafine, Fafa, um, identify as as he. It's sort of in between, you know, in between, like because because it's a because it has deep cultural roots. This gender ambiguity thing is very, you know, you could like it's very. I mean, it's interpreted very differently, and the and the culture of it's kind of changed with a lot of. Um, Samoans have moved to New Zealand and what it means to be Fafafine is very different according to who you're talking to. I'm putting a lot of Polynesian culture into the game and I thought that's a, that's a cool thing. You know, I'm not like, I'm, I'm going to make a game about trans issues because clearly I'm not. Actually, it's not clear. I could be trans, couldn't I? But, you know, I'm just saying, I'm not trans. Yeah, so Fijian dictators and... Tonga royal family, they are cunts, the Tonga royal family, like they've banned like, the, the national newspaper of Tonga, it's published in New Zealand because they can't sell it, it's banned, like there's all these kind of weird kind of things happening, which I think are really cool, and I would like to see a game about all this kind of cool culture that's out there, um, and um, probably the ideal situation would be people who actually live in Polynesia, because I live in France. Technically, legally, I'm Maori enough to like claim Maori stuff. Practically, everyone in New Zealand is part Maori. So, but apart from that, I'm this I'm this white woman who has now an Australian accent who lives in France who wants to make a game that is relevant to her childhood and friends as well. You know, and ironically, I'm worried about cultural appropriation because you know every single game I've worked on my entire career has been about other people's culture and this is a part of my culture that I feel is my kind of culture partly, you know, like I, I grew up with this kind of stuff um, to some extent and I feel like this is getting, getting back to my roots but it, you know, of course it won't be soon this is a, this is a brown game as, it, as one says in New Zealand, you know this is very brown it's a brown game so Look at me on my. Yeah. So, and and I'm not trans, and this is going to be. So I, I don't know how to deal with this. Okay. Is this a thing that you're trying to think through, or a thing that you're just going to make it and then? I'm going to make it and then hope that I don't offend too many people. Um, I'm going to try and get people to help, you know, consult. But the thing is, it's just, like when you. Like, so, my friend, Sandra, she's like, oh, I'm going to put KFC in the game. I'm like, I can't put KFC. Yeah. Like, this is my Tongan friend. She's like, oh, but you know, Tongans, like, in KFC. I'm like, I can't put fried chicken in this game. <laughs> if you were making the game, Sandra, you could, you could put fried chicken in there. Because you're, you're, well, she's, she's half Tongan. You this is the super loud music bit. Sorry. Put fried chicken because you are you are well, she's she's half Tongan. I'm a white woman. I cannot put fried chicken in a game about you know um, non-white culture. That is but she does have a point on Tongan. I think it's Tongan Airlines. They serve KFC. Okay, KFC is super popular, and it is super popular in that. That community. I'm not. I mean, that's just that's a fact. I'm not. I don't want to make a thing of it. I don't want to laugh at it. I don't want to mock. So it's not going in the game. But you know, it's like, it's like if you if you have like if you have friends from a community, you're just like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be super super sensitive here, and I'm gonna get them to tell me what they, you know, because it's super. And they'll tell you all this racist stuff. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's funny. You should put this. Stuff, you know, like well, it's, it's funny to them, but it's like you can do like. I relate to this because I feel like, okay, if I'm going to make a game that's about people like me, it's about my lived experience and my identity, I have to make a game about 
a white New Zealander who lived a lot in Australia and now lives in France is not particularly connected to any of those cultures really and that would be the most boring game you know I could you know but if I restrict to myself what am I you know I mean we don't we don't we can't have we can't res- we can't not make stories about other people because then otherwise we're making stories about yeah. white middle class people you know I, and I think that there are two solutions. Like one is make space for people who aren't white and middle class in the stories that you tell, but make sure that you speak to people and learn about it, like honestly and earnestly. And then the other one is just um, is out is what in arts is often called outreach. It's like making sure that there are workshops and but but also like I guess that's where I sometimes then go back to my straight up activism and like actually there's a free workshop to learn how to make a twine game that I'm running this estate but people don't have the time to come to it and that's because they have so many childcare um, costs and they have so many hours to work and stuff so maybe actually just need to go and spend two years working as a uh, straight up let's change how people's lives work and I, I basically I'm going to have to remake the whole entire world yeah, to happen to some extent yeah uh, but I don't I think that I think one of the beautiful things about activism is it's a thing that's passed from hand to hand no one person could fight some of the stuff that's out there on their own and in their lifetime so it has to be and there's a problem with the amount of burnout that happens with activists and all that kind of thing so it has to be a thing that's held by many hands and so I know that I can't make the difference that means that everyone suddenly has more time on their hands to explore what it is to tell their own story and have the skills with which to do so but I can do small things in the places that I feel like make small differences in the hope that it will pass from my hands into someone else's hands that's all I can do to rationalise it and not curl up in a ball and never leave the house which sounds quite attractive actually don't <laughs> curling up in the well, <laughs> it's because I'm at a festival and there's loads of people I have to see my dog. Yeah, 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 the overwhelming. Um, so, pretty much fine to wrap up now, but tell me, just, uh, do you want to tell me the title of the game that you're working? Does it have a name? Yes, because um, I'm shit, you know, I don't, like all this, you know, Jason Delorca has just done this talk about, you know, traction and stuff, like, I don't actually have any art for this guy. I mean, I've. I've I've, I've got a playable game. I just can't show it to anyone because it's programmer art, right? But I, and I have a title. It's called um, uh, South Sea Trouble. South Sea Trouble. Um, do you want to tell me anything about the game? It's um, a sort of a casual strategy. It's kind of a bit like plan and execute, like a plan and execute game, except that you, it's real time. So you, you've got these boats, and. Um, you manage this fleet of boats, um, top down, sort of, you know, touch base, and you've got to pick up parishioners and get them to the church on time because getting to church is quite important on a Sunday in the South Pacific with rival churches, rival churches, Presbyterians versus Methodists, <laughs> for example. Okay. Yes. So that is the oh, and the art style, but I don't have an artist because I and I can't draw. I want this like. Um, Ideally, I would like this. I really was as a kid. I was really into um, Buster comics and like 
not exactly the Beano, but that sort of like Brit comics. Really disgusting. I fucking hate anime. I hate the big eyes and the like beautiful face, you know, the blank looks. You know, like, I feel like I hate pretty characters and I hate like seeing beautiful characters in games and I want the Brit comic ugly kind of grotesque kind of like when cartoons were ugly mm. when I mean when comics were ugly I want that kind of thing. I feel like there's some of that heritage in Asterix and stuff as well like the the goals of Asterix were all they bulbous noses yeah, yeah, yeah. and all the no, like the noses like yeah. the and the Romans no I was thinking yeah, the, the Romans and Asterix with the noses and yeah, stuff. yeah 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 that kind of like it's not kind of pretty mm. and people aren't eternally young Old, I I met this um there's this there's this comic artist in Spain no sorry oh shit I've just offended Portuguese she's Portuguese she's called jo- Joanna Afonso and she does a lot of um, comics where she uses elderly characters specifically because they're more interesting to draw and she loves wrinkles and she's like we had this conversation over a bit of vodka once at an event and she was like fuck anime well I was maybe fuck anime but she was like yes my students I discourage them from anime characters I want to draw anime characters but you know she was like I feel like wrinkles Do you want to leave leave the podcast on the word wrinkles, or um, is there anything yes, that you I want think, to add? <laughs> no, no, wrinkles are wrinkles are. We all end with wrinkles, don't we? Yes. We all end up with wrinkles. It's a good, it's a good ending thing. Yeah, great. Thank you so much. Um, so it's a goodbye to the podcast listeners. Good goodbye, listener, <laughs> listeners, <laughs> one listener. So multiple listeners. Yeah, thousands. Sorry, I thought I was trying to offend Fine. myself, not it's you. Basically, just my mum. <laughs> I don't even know if she's listening. Um, thank you. So there you go. It ends with wrinkles. Thanks again to Catherine for taking the time out of her trip to Berlin to talk to me. Follow her on Twitter at haikus underscore by underscore kn. Thanks to Daniel J. Harvey for the podcast music. Dan's band Olympian's new record, Reasons to be Tearful, comes out very soon and sounds great. Follow Onward Olympians on Twitter for more on that. Thanks to my beautiful, wonderful Patreon backers at Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash Hannah Nicklin for providing me with the support that makes this podcast possible. And finally, thank you to you for listening. If you've enjoyed it, please do consider backing me for a small monthly amount from $1 on Patreon patreon where you'll also get a backstage pass to some of the creative and critical writing and research that i do in and around games patreon one of the less shitty ways to take money in exchange for making things Uh, thanks for listening goodbye (laughs) 